I'll start by uh, reading the passage, and then we'll uh, and then we'll start into the sermon. Uh, oh, I have control here. So I think. Uh, oops, I keep hitting the wrong button. Are you controlling that? Because uh, all right. Do I watch this? Okay. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Lord, this is your word, and I pray that uh, through all of our um, inabilities and also our abilities, that we would serve you as sons and that as we reflect on your word this morning, your spirit would work the work in our hearts to cry, Abba, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was talking El- with Elroy earlier this summer about we wanted su- what we wanted Sunday morning to be like and, and just to remind you that the early church met in homes. Um, even the church in Jerusalem might uh, go to the service at the temple, but afterwards they'd go back, and in their day-to-day lives, uh, they would fellowship eating together uh, in homes. So when you think about the words we just read in Paul's letters, you should hear them as though they're being read in a large living room, and uh, everyone crowded in together. If you do that, it will help you understand why Paul wrote the letter to Philemon the way he did, why the church in Corinth has all these divisions, houses that were not, re- not that remarkably different then than now, at least with respect to a large meeting room. A few decades ago, archaeologists unearthed what they think was the Apostle Peter's house at Capernaum, had a large living room and a door that spilled out into a courtyard. This house became a place of Christian worship in the first and second century, and there were mosaics related to fishing, and uh, they thought maybe it was Peter's house and worship. It might have been this house, in that particular house, or in a nearby house, that Jesus was talking to his disciples. And uh, 
his family came in, his mother and brothers. Well, they didn't come in. They were standing outside. So packed was the crowd that they had to send a messenger in. If you know the text around it, they thought Jesus was a little out of touch. Okay? Yes, Mary, did you know? Sort of. She sort of knew. Okay. And Jesus says the most remarkable thing. It's in Mark 3.34. Looking at those who were sitting around him, so he took a moment, a messenger comes in and says, your mother and brothers and maybe sisters are waiting outside. And uh, he says, behold, my mother and my brothers. He's looking at you. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, brother and sister and mother. Shocking. It's a shocking thing to say. Can you imagine what your mother would say if you said that about that? About so um, I have a friend who used to live in the Middle Eastern country, and um, even today, this kind of reply would get you in a, a lot of trouble. I uh, wouldn't go home for dinner. But that's the point. Our life in Christ is not just a continuation of the normally expected human culture. Paul was not sent from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. We're not being strange or rude. We're just realizing that there is something more true, more compelling than the natural world around us. And not just in arbitrary ways, but in the fundamental ways that our life in Christ is distinctive. So when Paul writes that the Father sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, it's another way of saying that if we are in Christ, we are truly family together. And if we are sons of our Father, adopted into that family, we are in this household together. We started this series by recalling how Paul begins the letter, a greeting that remarkably different from almost all his other letters, emphasizing the resurrection and that we've been re uh, rescued from the present evil age through the work of Christ offering himself as a sacrifice. We, we learn soon after that that the letter um, be, uh, begins that this act of Jesus fundamentally created a new age, the beginning of the messianic age where the Father is bringing all things together in Christ. Last week, the main idea is that we are no longer enslaved to the present age and its elemental spirits, but we've been adopted by God into his family. We've become sons and heirs. Heirs of a promise that God made to Abraham for centuries before the law was given. Heirs in the same way that Psalm 16 reflects a messianic psalm. That's Jesus talking in that psalm about us being his inheritance. And you'll see in the Old Testament, the Levites were God's inheritance, but also the people are God's inheritance. We are God's inheritance. God is our inheritance. This week, we'll explore what it means for us to have been rescued, to have been made free, to have been adopted. And now that we are all that, we are sons in the household of faith. There are persistent themes in all of these uh, weeks and in Paul's writings. We're completely un incapable of affecting the change, of rescuing ourselves. Every good thing does come from the Father who loves us. And when the Father sent the Spirit of his Son, we now belong to it, the body of Christ, and thus to each other. I belong to you. 
You belong to me. We are um, each other's. So the people you see around you every day are living enslaved. Do you think about that? They are slaves of the world around them the same way we were. They don't know it. Their chains have become so comfortable. Their fascination with the world and the things of the world is perfectly natural to them. Well, you can talk to people about sin and the fallenness of their lives and even the struggles and the way Christ helps you in your own life. It takes the Holy Spirit to bring them from death to life. We were enslaved, weren't we? So how did we get to be in God's household in the household of faith? So first, we had to be born again. But don't get stuck on how all of that happens. The Spirit works in our hearts and everything happens. And it's just a continuing work of sanctification to bring us more and more in conformity with His Son. And the point is that we do that in the context of life together. It's one of the things we have to talk about. It's one of the things we have to be reminded about and share with each other to hold one another accountable. Because we are in Christ, we are being saved, we will be saved, and we work with each other in that. So whenever we talk about the privileges we have in Christ, we should always be mindful of those who do not yet know, have not yet heard, did not yet listen. Someday, some of those people will be believers and adopted as sons to belong to our family. We always pray for that. People you know, people I know and love are not yet in the body of Christ. They do not yet know our Lord. And we pray that they will. When that happens, all the angels in heaven will start dancing and singing and rejoicing and giving praise to God. Someday, others of those people will have to give an account for why they never chose to follow Christ. And someday your face or my face will come to mind. And I hope and pray that they never ask, why didn't he tell me? Why didn't they mention it? Why wasn't the most important thing about your life evident to those that you come in contact with? So that might be the only contact with the believer they have. Sons need to love our Father more than that uncomfortable feeling. We have to speak up even if your mouth is dry. That would have been a good time to take a sip. You just have to remember it's not your job to save them. When you pray for people and we send and we go, and we go with the gospel, so Paul, as he closes this letter, encourages us to do good to everyone and especially those of the household of faith. That phrase, household of faith, isn't just a rhetorical flourish. It shows up in others of Paul's letters. The idea that we live in a household is one of the underlying thoughts in this letter. After all, in both Hebrew and the Greco-Roman world, slaves and non-family members were not permanent to the household. So God's decision to adopt us is critical to our eventual destination. Paul is making that point. Albeit subtly, at the end of chapter 5, when he tells us we were born to the free woman, not to the slave woman. Eventually, Hagar and Ishmael are sent away, but Isaac stays and grows up to inherit. And I want you to remember, Paul says, you brothers, brothers and sisters, you are the just like Isaac, the promised child, the one that everyone's waiting for. So if I don't get through to my main point, if the clock runs out or there's a thunderstorm and we lose power, if I get to be with Jesus right in the middle of my sermon, 
if for whatever reason the sermon ends here, here was my point. We who were menial slaves and enemies of Christ are now sons and heirs in the household of God because Jesus bought that for us. And this breathtakingly beautiful privilege of a son puts us in a position to serve in the household the way a good son does. It comes with a purpose for your life to love and serve the very same crazy variety of Gentile sinners who have been adopted into this family. If you walk away from our time this morning and fail to recognize just what God has done to make you His forever, what a breathtaking privilege that is, and that it opens the door for you to actually be Christ-like to serve your brothers and sisters, um, then you would want to finish that sentence. Okay, so uh, how will you serve? How will you be a good son? I hope you aren't looking around thinking about how to arrange the chairs. Um, Beautiful to have people serving in music and in sound, but the real work of the gospel happens in your living room, in the kitchen, in a conversation with a friend, over the phone, over coffee. The real work of the gospel happens when we bear one another's burdens. And that's exactly how Paul puts it. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So it starts with you, your Bible, your faith and walk in God, and inviting others to participate. You need them. They need you. How about we? We need, I need you. And I, Sadly, you need me. So, <laughs> um, so we'll turn to the text, and um, I've fulfilled my obligation and can now just, when the time comes, invite you up for communion. Okay, so uh, the first uh, verse in chapter 5 is a paragraph all by itself. Uh, it's a beautifully written sentence, and it works like kind of a hinge. So you come out of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, Paul closes off what he has been saying in chapter 4. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Now, that's such an awkward turn of phrase. And um, the point is that it's really emphasizing you've been set free. Set free to and freedom for for being a son. Uh, It turns out that this is just the same kind of phrase that was used when slaves were freed in the Roman world. Now, I'm not entirely sure that that's what Paul is quoting here. I've read a lot about uh, Roman households in this past week, and one of the things I am sure of is that life as a slave was not pleasant. And um, this is particularly, I mean, it's never pleasant. We were not ever supposed to do that, human beings, to one another. Um, But... uh, the idea that the gospel sets you free, that the Son sets you free and you are truly free is what Paul is trying to thunder home in what is, in, other, in um, some ways, a very awkward turn of phrase. It turns out that this phrase, when a slave was going to be freed, uh, when they'd saved up enough money or been given enough in um, a particular Latin term uh, to be able to buy their way to freedom, they went before the courts and they were... Uh, released into uh, one, of the, one of the gods. So Apollo would be the one providing the money, and then the slave would be freed to Apollo. Now, if that is what Paul is saying here is essentially, you've been redeemed 
in our case, it's actually true. We've been redeemed with something we could never afford to pay into the care of someone who is now our new uh, God and the one that we worship and care for. So um, I think it's very interesting if he is quoting that uh, Greco-Roman kind of context. Here, I'll read you the phrase and tell you why people think it. Apollo the Pythia bought from Sisybius of Amphysia for freedom, for freedom, a slave named Nicaea. The purchase, however, Nicaea has committed unto Apollo for freedom. So the for freedom is the purpose and also the means. So if that's what Paul is getting at, we've been purchased away from enslavement to the world and into uh, something more. So this isn't idle advice. We really do have to work at it. He does say stand firm. It is something uh, that requires us to continue to understand and work together. It's easy to become enslaved. I think what must have been going on in Galatia for these people to say, you know, Christ isn't enough. We need to also follow the law. And so in following the law, we will then become somehow more pleasing to God. And what they have done in that is set aside the work of Christ as if to say, well, that was good. Now we'll finish ourselves. Okay, we started fine with Jesus, but... His work was just a nice start. And uh, Paul, that's going to really make Paul angry, okay? And there's no reason why he shouldn't be. So Paul says, look, <laughs> this is, Paul repeats paying attention to who he is. He's so emphatic here. The translators are trying to capture that look, <laughs> um, say, hey, it's me, the guy who used to persecute the church and tried to destroy it. And I was a huge advocate of the most severe sects of Judaism, of one of the most severe sects around, and um, it's me who's writing to you. Remember all that I told you in the prior chapters about my way of life? That is why I'm telling you how significant and important what I'm about to say is. That is also a significant um, hint to us about our own lives. Your life is being fashioned to be a testimony of God's grace. Whether you think it's beautiful right now, you're in the middle of it. And in the middle of it, it's like one of those tapestries. I'm sure you've heard this, or if you haven't, I think it's really very helpful. <laughs> if you look at a tapestry from the top, it's beautiful. If you look from the bottom, it's got all the knots and threads and everything. And we see our lives from all the knots and threads and all of the mess. But God is weaving a beautiful tapestry in your life. And even though it hurts right now, even though it um, isn't turning out the way you want it, I hope it is turning out the way you want it, but if it isn't, um, it's because of the continuing work of the Lord to bring testimony to his name. You'll be able to tell people the good things that God is doing. So that's what Paul is doing. His pig-headed, I don't know if that's the right word for Jewish, okay? So his stubborn focus on Pharisaical, so to the extent that if you read elsewhere in the Scriptures, he got people to blaspheme the name of Jesus. He put people in prison, and he had people put to death. He stood in front of Stephen as he was being stoned to death and watched him testify that had to be um, the most, one of the most humiliating things to then come back and say, I was wrong. This man was testifying to the truth. 
But Paul's life is one of the most significant testimonies we have of the truth of the gospel. And that power and that spirit working through that is working in you in order to reach others. So as we think about being this household, I hope you can tell other people your story. I hope that you can sit in a living room, and this isn't one, okay, but in a real living room and tell your story about how God is fashioning you into His likeness. And if it's bumpy and scraped and it hurts, welcome. Welcome. Because He is good and He is merciful and His mercy endures forever. And that is a testimony of, of His great goodness. So I hope that you that you can see that in Paul's own life, he's testifying of what good work that God has done. So, um, you are severed from Christ. Uh, he's using a little bit of um, uh, language here, rhetor rhetorical flourish, actually, to say, yeah, um, if you are turning back to some other way of justification, uh, you're missing the point. Okay. So, for through the Spirit, we are um, catching up. Okay, so through the Spirit, we ourselves eagerly wait for the um, promise of righteousness. Um, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Someday, and we sing about this, someday we will be with him forever. That hope, and we eagerly wait for it, but that hope that he will be our God and we will be his people because Paul brings this up just at this point in the letter. Until Christ came, the law considered that there were two kinds of people, circumcised and uncircumcised, those in the people of promise, those outside the people of promise, and it divided them. You might remember that just in the beginning of the letter, and I hope you've been reading it these weeks, and I hope if you haven't been that you take the opportunity this week to read it, that there was a conflict in Antioch where um, Peter began to withdraw from having meals with Gentiles. And that's because there are these strong Jewish laws that make it difficult to eat uh, next for Gentiles and Jews to eat together, even to this day. So there were two worlds, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And uh, what in Christ Jesus, those have been united in one new man. As we've been uh, crucified with Christ, we become a new uh, creation. And that new creation is what we now live in. So the divisions of the external things like slave or free Walking through a church door, which would be a house door, in a first century Christian home meant that you were not a slave or free, um, circumcised, uncircumcised, uh, male or female. It meant that you were brothers and sisters together in the household. In fact, Paul has to kind of remind slaves that once they've come into church, they can't really just mock their master. They need to show respect to each other in, in that whole thing. But the what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is the world was divided over these external observances. Um, Peter wasn't unusual in, in deciding not to eat with Gentiles. It was expected to cause problems to, um, for keeping kosher. 
But that would make for division in the body of Christ, and that's why it had to go. We are all one because we all have the same basis, which is our faith and trust in Christ. So that is what gives us our hope. That's the, Paul is very strongly emphasizing the word we here. We ourselves eagerly wait, and it is all about uh, the work that Christ has done to make us and put us together as we. So for um, the old covenant marker for whether a person belonged to God or not was circumcision. Now the marker is faith expressing itself through love, faith working through love. So if you'll, um, there's a very beautiful understanding about how faith, hope, and love integrate together. And the most important one that I can sort of um, try to encourage you to reflect on is um, that faith expresses itself in love. Uh, there's a, I remember this from a graduate school. I was uh, in a class where they were working, uh, I was learning about artificial intelligence and because um, graduate students need all the intelligence they can get. And um, uh, they were telling about a DARPA project where they spent millions, perhaps a billion dollars on a, um, a device that could, uh, a machine that could just drive around and do whatever they needed it to do. But in order to do that, you, you put this, let's say, tank. Uh, you put this tank out there and it needs to go somewhere. And so they'd spent all this money and they had the people who were funding them, the congressmen watching, and they put the tank down and, and it was going to go do this project. Well, there was a tree, but it wasn't in the tank's way. There's a tree off to the side and it cast a shadow. And so the tank came up to the shadow and stopped because, if you like, the tank believed the shadow was actually, couldn't tell that it wasn't a three-dimensional object. It actually believed that was an immovable object. It wouldn't move. <laughs> so now um, my point is that if you believe that you belong to Christ, if you are so convinced of the truth that your life has changed, changed forever, how will you live differently? How will your actions demonstrate that what you, act, what you think, what you confess, that you actually own it and that it transforms what you do? So faith working through love is the expression. Love is the expression of the fact that we know we have been loved and we are being transformed uh, into the image of Christ, and so we will keep at it. Now, I, I have to think, because the way that Paul uh, develops the argument here, it's not an argument, it's an appeal. This is a sermon. Galatians is a sermon. A lot of the letters are sermons, and, and they're really good sermons, and they're really thick, right? Um, I spent all week uh, on this, and I loved every minute of it. Thank you for the privilege of um, preparing this meal. And um, it's really been great. I, I hope it doesn't give you indigestion, but because um, I can do that, so I know that. But um, something had to happen for the people in Galatia to, in all these little churches, all these little homes, to suddenly think that they had to go back to something else. And I wonder if the idea of living together in community was just getting to them and just being too much. Because at the end of this, Paul will say, be careful, uh, or you may bite and devour. And he uses animal language like chewing on a bone, gnawing 
on each other. So be careful. You don't want that to happen. So he says, who, uh, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from the one who calls you. Now, what's in here? I have confidence in the Lord. You'll take no other view than mine. And one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. There's so much about being convinced in your own mind that Paul is actually reflecting that those who belong to Jesus, those who have the Spirit, will be brought by the Spirit's work into conformity of what is true. So subject yourself to the Scriptures, bring them into your life, and bring other people into your life who are believers who can help remind you and listen to you and talk to you about what it is that is true in the gospel. We should call one another to that. That's part of our responsibility to each other. And we, it doesn't happen in this setting. I mean, it does a little bit. That's what I'm trying to do. But um, it isn't personal. It, it, I'd like it to be, but it really requires that conversation and so, since we belong to each other, since we're accountable for each other, since we're responsible to each other, then we need just what Paul is doing for the Galatians here and to say, okay, you've got the wrong idea and we need to help you figure it out. And so, as we work through, I'm going to argue from Scripture, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm convinced that God is working in your understanding. And we need that. We need the Holy Spirit to give us this understanding as we pour over the Scriptures. The Bereans in Acts, uh, just after Thessalonica, the Bereans were very careful to go back and say, well, what Paul says is interesting, but let's make sure that it's biblical. So that's what's going on here. And then I also think a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's just talking about if you have um, some flour and you're going to make bread and you put just a little pinch of leaven, I always like to say it with a little Semitic twist, right? Little leaven, leaven's the whole lump. You don't have to buy lots of leaven. You're just a little bit. Whole lump. Okay, now, um, no. So, <laughs> so the idea is that um, if you get a bad idea, it can just permeate the whole, all of the body of Christ. It can, all of us together. So we need to make sure that we're working together to keep things um, healthy, Okay. So I will uh, do what I promised and uh, finish with, chat with verse 12. No, I won't. But peace to you. I've offended them. No, so um, anyway. Um, so when Paul has this statement in verse 12, you have to understand that this, um, this response, the offense of the cross being removed in verse 11. So if I still preach circumcision, why am I persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross would have been removed. Um, so I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. It's a strong statement. I have to read it out loud because it's what the Bible says. And the truth is that what these people are essentially saying is that the work of Christ is nothing because you have to add to it. It's not enough. Imagine the work of Christ on the cross to redeem us to himself to buy us back out of slavery, and you have to add to it. And that's why this language is strong. And, um, and it is uh, justified. But the other thing that I, that I want to kind of, I'll close with, um, is this offense of the cross. 
Um, we don't, uh, I mean, if you've seen modern movies like The Passion of the Christ, you know that Christ suffered, and we know that he bled. But one of the things I've not fully understood is how shameful that was to die as a criminal. How shameful it was to be beaten and scourged and spit on and despised. You put them up on the cross to show everyone how hated and despised this person is. And now, the people like Paul are called to go and proclaim salvation in the name of this despised criminal that um, it would be, you know, we don't wear, um, I'm sure you've heard this before, we don't wear electric chairs or um, hanging nooses around our neck because when we wear the cross around our neck, that's essentially what we are saying is that the device used to put him to death was a device used to show how despised he was. And that's, we bear that shame as believers. We have to be careful not to step away from the offense that is the cross. When you tell people, I'm a Christian, meaning I go to um, family group, that's not enough. When you say, I believe that a condemned criminal died in my place because I'm a condemned criminal, offensive to God, I smell like vomit to God. And yet, in His mercy and grace, He washed me, He cleansed me, and redeemed me back to Himself, adopted me into His family. The Roman father had the right, when a child was born, to turn away from the child. Many children were left out and abandoned. Uh, it wasn't until the eighth day that children were given a name. Daughters on the eighth day, sons on the ninth day. Because the father could in any of that time just say, not, not for me, and turn away. But if the father turned and picked the child up and accepted it, that child became part of the family in the household. That happened to us. And um, in the way that happened was at the cross. So every week we celebrate that, that the blood of Christ shed for you and the body of Christ broken for you have made you adopted into his family. As sons caring for each other, I invite you to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with me and to remember how we as a family are called to serve one another. That's what fulfills the law. We don't obey the law, but we do fulfill it. And we fulfill it by loving one another and bearing one another's burdens. So I, um, I don't know if anyone's coming to help me, but if somebody could come to help me. Uh. Or not, that's fine. <laughs> okay, all right then. The Lord Jesus... On the night he was betrayed, took bread and broke it. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner also, he took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, this cup in my blood is the new covenant.
This is the covenant promise to us, the promise to the Gentiles to make us one new man in Christ. I invite you to come and uh, if you belong to Christ, to eat of the bread and drink of the cup and declare his death till he comes.